Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Welcome to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Hi FM. I'm your host, Rabbi Ari Kievman. And today we are going to continue our discussion of this week's Parsha, the Parsha of Noah. And the portion presents the tale of Noah, a man who watched an entire world be consumed in this devastating flood with only a handful of people surviving the disaster. Who were the survivors? It included his three sons, Shem, Cham, and Yafes. And what is the first, what's the first thing that Noah does after the flood as he emerges into this empty and you could say desolate world at the time after experiencing the devastation, the destruction and everything? What is the very first thing that he does? Anyone out? Well, he's got to start rebuilding. COVID. He builds it. Uh, oh, sorry. What does he do? Tell us. He builds, he builds, he builds him, he builds him his bath to say thank you to God. Okay, that's, that's true, but there's something else that happens as well, as you will see in the Parsha. And in fact, it is tomorrow's reading. He plants, he get, exactly, he gets to work and he plants a vineyard. And I just want to read a few of the verses to you just so you get, you get familiar with it. And the verse says that he planted the vineyard and then, well actually it says something interesting. He began to be a master of the soil and planted a vineyard, which I'm not sure what that says was happening before. But it says he drank of the wine and he became drunk and uncovered himself in his tent. And what happens next? Cham, his son, well, he's described as the father of Canaan. He saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. Shem and Yafes, they took a cloak, they laid it upon both their shoulders, and they walked backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. That's the verse. Very interesting little story here. And what I would like to do with you, my friends, today is to focus just a little bit on some aspects of this story for our lesson that we're going to discuss. And let's just focus on, first of all, there's, there's obviously a lot to discuss here, but for today's lesson, for today's discussion, number question number one. We understand that every story in the Torah, the Torah is not just a history book. The Torah is our story, right? The very, how do you call a teacher in Hebrew? A mora, right? That's a teacher, very similar to the word Torah. So by the Torah being a instruction manual, a guide to life, the Torah defines its own genre and mission statement. And the Torah informs us about what happened in the past. Obviously, it includes historical events, but many events, we don't hear very much detail about them. Even Noah, we don't know that much about Noah's life. Why does the Torah include this little story? What's the relevance of this strange story? Why are we being told about it? And, you know, the Zohar tells us that obviously every single detail in biblical that, that's included in the Torah 
has to have a message and, and, and lesson for us. The Torah is called Eitz Chaim Hilama Chazikimba. We say this when we lift the Torah. Eitz Chaim Hilama Chazikimba. Torah is a tree of life for those who hold on to it. And those who draw near to it are Meusha, they're fortunate. Says the Zohar, what does it mean? It's a tree of life, that the Torah is great and it's a strong supernal tree. Why is it called Torah? So the Zohar tells us, because it is aura, it brings light, it enlightens, it reveals that which is hidden and unknown. And it's called life, because all supernal life is included within it and comes from the Torah. And of course, the verse continues that those who hold on to it, meaning those who, who take its lessons to life, their life will be enriched, are, are, are fortunate. So it's clear that what the Torah that the Torah is a guide for our life. And then of course we need to know if the Torah doesn't tell us all that much about Noah's life, but includes this sad and unfortunate incident, what's its message to us? How is this story meant to guide us in our lives? And our second question that we want to discuss here is, you know, for sages and rabbis over the past 3,000 years, more, the Torah God gave us the Torah 3,300 and and 33 years ago, it was clear that there's, there's, there's no, there's nothing superfluous. There's not a word or letter in the Torah that's redundant, that's extra, that's unnecessary. Large sections of Talmud are based on this very idea. There's a famous actor, forgetting which actor it is, comes to mind. They say that he had very, not actor, producer, very little wastage in his movie productions, meaning, Whatever footage he's taken, it was mostly used for the actual final product of his movies. Nothing was made to waste. If you think that a movie producer can do that, then how much more so Almighty God in the Torah? And that there's large sections of the Talmud that are based on this premise that discuss this. If a verse is lyrically repetitive, if two words are used where one would suffice, or if a longer word is used when a shorter word would have been enough, there's a message here. A new concept, another law, something that could be derived from it. The fact that in our Parsha, the Torah goes on to describe that the animals that Noah brought into the ark, instead of calling them impure, instead of saying that they were, that they're tame, the Torah uses a more refined language says that are not pure. Every single letter and that's, that's seemingly additional, has a message and lesson. And the Talmud tells us that finding the depth in every single nuance in the Torah was one of the unique talents of the greatest, one of the greatest sages in our history, Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva, the Gemara tells us tremendously about him, that he knew how to interpret every, uh, the extra crowns on top of letters, as you might see inside a Torah scroll. Yet, the story about the behavior of Noach's sons, it, if you read it in the verses in the Torah, it's replete with redundancy. You know what? I want to take a minute and actually reread those words, the verse to you, okay? What does the verse say? Shame and Yafas took a cloak, 
They laid it upon their shoulders and they walked backwards and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned backwards and they saw not their father's nakedness. Did you hear that? Did you see how much redundancy, repetitiveness is going on here? Once the Torah says that they walked backwards, why does it repeat in the same sentence that their faces were turned backwards? If you walk backwards, obviously your face is turned backward, no? And then the, just to analyze the text a little bit more with you, just to look at this a little bit further. Once the Torah tells us that they walked backwards and that their faces were turned backwards, why does the Torah feel the need to conclude that the obvious they didn't see their father's nakedness? Certainly if you're walking backwards and your face is turned backwards, you can't see that which lies behind you. No? So Rashi in our parsha right here, Rashi addresses this discussion. And his answer is very simple. He says, though the two sons entered Noah's tent backwards, ultimately when they approached their father, obviously the father was naked as the verse describes, then they needed to turn their bodies around to cover him. So at that point, their bodies were facing Noah. They, they, they pivoted. So the Torah tells us that they made a point to still turn their faces backwards so as not to see their father naked. It wouldn't be appropriate. And this is Rashi's words. Now, that obviously helps us to understand a little bit of the repetition. But why does the Torah feel compelled to conclude again with a redundant statement that they didn't see their father's nakedness? Isn't that obvious from the text? Why does it go out of its way to use extra verbiage here? Now you could comfortably suggest that the Torah is just using, you know, symmetrical style. First, it's telling us, Ham saw his father's nakedness. And then it concludes that Shaiman Yafas did not see their father's nakedness. So stylistically, that might make sense. Ham saw and Shaiman Yafas did not see. They turned aside. But it's still superfluous. Because in Torah, we don't want to have extra verbiage. It's not necessary. Even if it's stylistically attractive. So if we look a little bit deeper, we come to realize that there's a, a, a difference here between the brothers. Cham saw, shame and Yafas did not see. That captures the essence of the story. The Torah is indicating that the difference between the brothers was not just in their behavior, in the sense that Cham saw his father's nakedness and went to tell his brothers about it, while his brothers went to cover their father without gazing at his nudity. Rather, the behavioral differences stemmed from a deeper psychological and emotional patterns. Cham saw, shame and Yafas did not see. Their emotional perceptions of their father's intoxication from drinking wine and his behavior, that I think is a tremendous difference that we have to pay attention to. The story with Noah and his children could serve as another example in the, let's call it the psychoanalytical constructs that you could see throughout Torah if you pay attention. And we're going to explore and understand the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov 
on this particular matter. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. Come back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9. Chai FM, I am Rabbi Ari Kievman. And let us begin, let us analyze an intriguing observation made by, actually in the 1700s, by one of the greatest masters of Jewish spirituality and psychology, none other than Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement. Said the Baal Shem Tov, he says as follows, if you are ever going to encounter negative and see something negative in somebody else, you want to know what? He says it actually is a reflection of something in yourself. He said that if indeed we see negative in somebody else, it's a reflection of something inside yourself. And perhaps that's why a tzaddik doesn't see the negative in others, because a tzaddik is looking out for the best in someone else. How do you understand this? Now, before we try to understanding this idea, it's interesting that although the Baal Shem Tov lived 250, 300 years ago, the idea that seeing an evil in somebody else, that it's a reflection of something inside yourself, this principle is something that is, you know, it, it's actually mentioned in the Mishnah. Because there's a Mishnah that says, Kol ha-poysel pasel, whoever declares somebody, somebody else invalid, unfit, is themselves unfit. And the, that's, that's the words of the Gemara. And the, the Talmud adds, the mumay paisel. People declare others unfit with their own blemish. What does that mean? Talmud tells us that if a person constantly barrages another person, with a certain stigma, you have to know that that person carries the same stigma. That he's not a, you know, the, the, the context of the Talmud is talking about marriages, about genealogy, but the point is that if somebody's calling someone else illegitimate, they can't marry a Kohen. How do you know? Chances are you have it yourself. Reminds me of a good old joke. Guy was on a plane and he's, He's sitting in the first class. Back in the old days when perhaps you could take out a cigarette. Sitting in first class smoking a cigarette. The guy sitting next to him says, don't you see the sign that says no smoking? He says, you know, do me a favor. You didn't see the sign earlier. It said drink Coke. You want to drink Coke, you drink Coke. You want to smoke, you smoke. You don't want to smoke, you don't have to. Ooh, the person next to him is enraged. He goes to call the flight attendant. In the meantime, this guy is already lashing out a cigarette, sprays some cologne, some perfume, makes sure there's not a trace of it. Flight attendant arrives. Stewardess asks, were you smoking? It's me smoking. What are you talking about? Never. So, well, this other passenger claims you're smoking a cigarette. That passenger, he's a liar. He's a thief. So really, why should I believe you? So look at his ticket. They look at his ticket. Ooh, he belongs in economy. They take him out of the first class, stop maligning your, other, your fellow passengers, gossiping about them, and they throw him in the back of the plane into economy. When they get off the plane, this guy who was smoking the cigarettes a little bit nervous and he sees the other fellows chasing after him. The other guy catches up. I'm so sorry. He said, how did you know I belong in economy? It's very simple. I saw your ticket. It was the same like mine. We both belong in economy. <laughs> Says the Baal Shem Tov that when you're seeing negative in somebody else, you're seeing something, it's a reflection in yourself. And this comes from the Gemara, really. The Gemara saying that kol ha-poysel 
Whoever is finding a blemish in somebody else is really seeing the blemish that is inside themselves. So this idea, on the one hand, it's, it, it's a concept in the Talmud. It's a teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. But I'm wondering if you relate to it. Is it, some people find it a difficult concept to grasp. You know, it sounds highly impractical. Now, say for example, you, you invest money to somebody in a business and that person betrays you in that business. Hey, they lied to your face. They denied the original business deal. They caused you tremendous financial loss. God forbid, not to you, somebody else. Is the Balshamtav suggesting that, that that person is, is really, is really virtuous? Or that you're really a thief? God forbid. How could you say such a thing? Can't an innocent person call a thief a thief without having the mirror turned back on themselves? What if I see somebody abusing someone else? If I see them who they really are, they're a, a criminal abuser. And I call them that. Does that mean that I'm also, God forbid, <laughs> guilty of, of this abominable crime? That's ludicrous. So, what if, what if I see somebody engaging uh, in, in some immoral, disgusting act? Does it mean that I've committed the same sin? Is, is the Baal of teaching that, suggesting that righteousness must go hand in hand with naivete, denial of reality? You hear my question? Now the simplest way of understanding this principle is based on another fundamental teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. What did he say? It says as follows. Anything, every single thing that a person sees or hears is an instruction for our life. There's a message and a lesson for it in the way we're meant to serve God. Everything, every single thing is a lesson on how to serve God better without exception. You experience something, you encounter something, there's a message and lesson for you within it. So should you see something negative in someone else? It's not by chance. Not for nothing did God orchestrate that you should see Mr. So-and-so doing such and such at this and this time. It's all part of the master plan to help facilitate your divine service. You saw it? God is showing you that you personally need to polish up and repair something within your own life. Why did it have to happen in this way? Why couldn't God simply make you realize what needs to be repaired? Why must you see it indirectly through someone else? The Baal Shem Tov says the answer is simple. Human nature is such that we really find ourselves guilty of anything. We're so madly in love with ourselves that come what may, we find some sort of acquitting logic for our own actions. You know why? Why did I say something nasty to my friend the other day? Because he's a jerk, that's why, right? It's not my fault. But the Baal Shem Tov says differently. As soon as someone else says something nasty to my friend, that someone else is all of a sudden the jerk. How dare they speak that way to my friend, to my brother? We love ourselves too much. So we don't see what's wrong with ourselves. But when someone else does that very same thing, the love isn't there. We're able to see it quite clearly. What happens? A couple falls in love with each other. 
They love each other so much. What about the little quirks that this person has? No, it's, it's cute. What happens when they fall out of love? It's not so cute. How does that happen? King Solomon was a very wise person. He actually said this in Mishle. Hatred arouses quarrels, but love covers all transgressions. And what is King Solomon telling us? That we cover over our own faults. A person's self-kinship it blinds us of our own flaws, shortcomings, deficiencies that we have. A negative trait or deed. So innocent and justifiable in myself. What happens when I see it in somebody else? Dreadful. How terrible could a person behave that way? So why am I not appalled in that behavior myself? But when I see it in somebody else, it's disgusting. So God arranges... That a person sees his own blemishes, his own faults, shortcomings, failures through the lens of someone else's deficiencies. God provides us the opportunity for improvement in our own life. And this is the essence of the Baal Shem Tov's teaching. Not that you necessarily possess the depth of evil that others possess. When you, <laughs> chances are, if you're seeing bad stuff, it's because there's something that you need to fix within yourself. Doesn't mean it's the same thing. Obviously, when we see something terrible in somebody else, it doesn't mean we possess that same, <laughs> that, that same characteristic. So, the Baal Shem Tov is telling us a fundamental principle that this idea that when we see negative in someone else, it's a reflection of ourselves. But there's another fundamental principle in Judaism. Don't we all know? Isn't it to love our fellow as ourselves? Doesn't the Torah say not to harbor hatred in your heart against somebody else? In fact, the verse continues, Very famous verse, you should surely rebuke your fellow, but you shouldn't bear their sin. Which, which means that when you see something negative in somebody else, we're meant to tell that person. But according to the Baal when you encounter negativity in another person, you should actually see yourself as the source of that problem. Because if you were pure and flawless, you would never have seen the dirt in another person. So instead of rebuking him, perhaps based on the Balchantov's logic, you should actually rebuke yourself. How could that be? The very notion that you never to rebuke someone else because you should never be seeing negative traits within them doesn't seem exactly the way the Torah is teaching us. Every single Jewish leader throughout history, all great leaders, they rebuked their followers at some point. Now take the Rebbe. There were certainly numerous times that the Rebbe admonished wrong behavior. You think about the Rebbe, the Rebbe is the epitome of love, of care, of concern for all of world Jewry, of all of humanity. The Rebbe reproached different individuals, sometimes even in public. Now, if it was in public, he never did so by name. But when he encountered people lying or gossiping, spreading hate, <laughs> doing something immoral, the Rebbe spoke out. Why did this tzaddik, a faithful follower and successor of the Baal Shem Tov, why didn't the Rebbe say to himself that the negative behavior he was encountering in someone else was essentially a mirror of his own? If he were pure, he wouldn't see it. 
So why rebuke them for his personal problem? And how about the Baal Shem Tov himself? Many Hasidic tales relate how the Baal Shem Tov confronted various people for moral shortcomings, for negative traits. How did the Baal Shem Tov, with a tzaddik of extraordinary proportions, how did he see the evil in others? If this is his teaching, did he not live up to his very own teaching? Clearly, my friends, the Baal Shem Tov's words have to be understood in another fashion as well. He was not attempting to poison us with this modern day, sophisticated, open-mindedness that, you know, that's pontificated in our universities and magazines that beheading human beings or blowing up children is not so evil. Somehow we could justify the behavior of ISIS and Taliban. The Baal Shem Tov would never think of reforming a fundamental Jewish teaching to see evil as it is and obliterate it and, and justify it as with all of the Hasidic teachings. He was exposing the inner soul behind what the Torah tells us to rebuke another. What the Bashamtav meant, he said there are two ways in which you could observe the negative in other people. There are two ways that you could see the negative in other people. And what are they? So the Baal taught us as follows. Of course, when the Torah says to rebuke another, it is certainly a biblical commandment, right? But the Baal says, either you could see it as a descriptive quality defining that individual, or you could see it as a reality that calls for a particular response from you. Let's take as an example. Let's use, let's not call anybody we know. Reuven and Shimon both catch Levi saying a blatant lie or cheating. Now, emotionally, Reuven and Shimon both saw the same thing, but they could have different responses. Reuven's emotional response, he might say, this Levi's a miserable liar, a lowly piece of dirt, a ganav, a gazlan, an obnoxious creep. I used to think Levi was a decent fellow. Now I discovered the truth. He's the scum of the earth. That's one way. For the next few days, Reuven's obsessed with the thought of what a low life this Levi, who he thought was a good guy before is. And may keep it to himself. Or maybe, if he really wants to get out there, he'll tell others about it. But his heart is deeply infatuated with hatred, with vengeance, with evil descriptions for Levi. Now, Shimon, Saw the same thing, but he might have a different response. What Levi did was really not good. It was wrong. It was unfair. It upsets me greatly. Now what should I do about it? Should I confront him directly and speak to him about it? What should be the best way of going about doing that? Should I instead avoid confrontations and use far more caution in dealing with him? Is it my way, my responsibility to warn other people about the risks of dealing with him. So both people, Ruven and Shimon, they observed the same behavior in Levi. Neither of them were naive about what happened. They both saw the theft. But Ruven is consumed at how horrible Levi is. Well, Shimon, he focuses on how Levi's behavior should affect his own. What's the difference? I'll share with you another, another way of seeing this. 
two husbands, David and Yehuda. Both have having, both love having guests over for dinner. They're, they're social animals. They enjoy schmoozing, hanging out with people, having a lachaim. Both of their wives, let's call them, let's call them the same name, Sarah. Okay? Both loathe having guests in their home. Now once during a conversation about this, the women share with their husbands how deeply insecure they feel in the presence of guests. They're, they're worried that they won't be able to do a good job. Maybe their cooking's not good enough. Maybe they're not the best hostess, whatever it is. Okay? And, and, and they feel that they're, they're not good at it and they're failures and, and they're hesitant. They, they don't want to do this. Both husbands hear the same confession coming from their wives, but they respond emotionally in two very different ways. David says, why is Sarah such an insecure person? Why can't she get over the, over her life together? Why, what, what's going on? She must be really messed up. She requires therapy for this. Endless therapy. Couldn't I have married a woman who's emotionally stable? Why did I have to end up with such an insecure kvetch who's frightened by a few measly guests who have their own set of psychological problems too? What's wrong with my wife? That might be one response. Say that's David's response. Yehuda says, you know, Sarah's struggle with insecurity is painful. And truthfully speaking, it makes my life harder. Now what can I do to help my wife and myself? Because we're one with each other. Her problem is my problem. Perhaps I can help her get to the bottom of her fears. Maybe I can get her somebody good to speak to. Maybe I should compliment her more often on her achievements, tell her how good her cooking skills are, how delicious her food is. Maybe I should tell her what a good hostess she is. Maybe she's just, you know, extra irritable now because of something else that's going on. She lost her job. And maybe soon things will get better. You see there's different ways of dealing with the same reality. Now why would these two characters respond in such polar different ways? And here again, David and Yehuda both observed an identical flaw. Just like Reuben and Shimon. Neither of them denied the reality of the condition. They know that their wives are not enjoying hosting guests. But their emotional responses are so dramatically, drastically different. While David became so obsessed with his wife's weakness, with her shortcomings and failures, and he tells himself, why did I marry the wrong woman? Yehuda instead, he focuses on how her issues affected him and what he could do to help the situation. You see, so different. Why the difference? The truth of the matter is that David, just like his wife, also suffers from, from insecurities. Who doesn't? And he too is trying to impress his guests. And he thinks he's overcoming his fears by entertaining. He's fearful how they're going to view him, how they're going to perceive him. It's just that his way of dealing with his insecurity is by inviting guests, having another lachaim with them. Instead of avoiding them, he is sinking himself deep into it. But both he and his wife are incapable of dealing with visitors in a natural and healthy fashion. I'm just projecting, I'm making this up, but 
I'm just trying to put out there how the situation could be. He responds in one direction. She responds in the opposite direction. In truth, both are uncomfortable with themselves. So when David encounters his wife's fear, what happens? David is thinking to himself, you know, the truth is, it's bringing out his own awkwardness of guests. But instead of confronting his own fears, he resorts to wife bashing because he's deflecting his own shortcomings. In reality, what David is really upset about is not Sarah's insecurity, but his own insecurity. The other guy, Yehuda on the other hand, he's confident with himself. So his wife's fears do not consume him. When he observes his wife's insecurity, he doesn't become entangled and, you know, get into this whole emotional web and needs to resort to, to mentally writing a critical biography about his wife. He str- his, her struggles are not his. He instinctively focuses simply on how to resolve the situation. What can we do? There's a problem. How are we going to resolve this? And the same thing, go back to the story. Reuben and Shimon uh, both saw Levi steal. The reason why Reuben is so obsessed with telling and retelling others what he saw about Levi, Levi stealing from others, is because something in Levi reminded Reuven about himself. His hate toward Levi is a form of hate toward a part of himself that he has never confronted and resolved. Shimon, on the other hand, never lies. Never cheats. He's completely secure and content with his honest and ethical lifestyle. He loves it. He cherishes it. So when he encounters Levi's misdeeds, he focuses on what he can and should do about it. He feels no need to tell himself over and over again how bad Levi is. Why would he be emotionally obsessed with describing another person's nature? Why would someone else's negative profile occupy his own mind unless it was lodging there all along? So my friends, this idea, more or less, is what the Baal meant when he stated that your fellow human being is your mirror. If your own face is clean, the image you perceive will also be flawless. But should you look at your fellow human being and see a blemish, it's your own imperfection that you're encountering. You are being shown what you must correct within yourself. In other words, if you observe a blemish in another human being and find yourself all caught up in what that person's problems are, rather than your own appropriate response to the situation, then very much according to the Vashemtev, Perhaps you might be struggling with a similar blemish. Maybe not in the same exact way. But it's time to take a good look in the mirror and confront your own issues. But if you encounter a negative quality or negative behavior in another person and you do not see his negativity per se and you don't find yourself enwrapped in defining how horrible and evil that person is, but rather you see in their negativity a call to take appropriate action to stop the behavior or to defend yourself and others from that person, then you're pure. That person's problem is really not your problem. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life.
Ladies and gents, welcome back to Soul to Soul right here on 101.9 Chai FM. I'm Arari Kivman. And according to the Bashemtav's observation, that the evil we see in someone else is a reflection of our own, that doesn't conflict with the Torah's injunction to rebuke evildoers at all. Yes, the Torah says you should rebuke someone else. Indeed, if you did not see the evil, rather you see the opportunity to constructively guide somebody along the right path. That's a mitzvah. But if you see evil, that sighting alone is enough to tell you that perhaps you suffer from the same problem. And so, if that's the case, if I'm seeing the negative in somebody else, well, it means there's something within me that needs to be fixed. Let me read it to you beautifully from the Rebbe's words. As he says, you can find it in Likutei Sichas, volume 10. He says, when a person hears that someone else did something inappropriate, his responsibility is to see only the dry legal realities of the situation. What can I do to fix and better the situation? Where there's darkness, it's my responsibility to bring light. Those are my words, paraphrasing the Rebbe. And so, of course, we have to do something about it. The flip side is a person who hears of a negative situation concerning someone else. And instead of focusing on how he can practically better the situation, he's obsessed over how bad that person is or focuses too much on it. In other words, he does not feel the responsibility to affect change. Rather, focuses strictly on the fact that the other person's bad. Then we know that that's a reflection of your own behavior. So, this is what the Torah says. Yes, you certainly should reprove. Why does the Torah say it twice? So the Hasidic masters explain it, saying, before you admonish your fellow human being, you know what? You first have to reprove yourself. You have to first make sure that you're not rebuking that person because you yourself suffer from the same flaw. If you're admonishing them as a way of of repressing or deflecting your own shortcomings, the rebuke will usually be counterproductive. The other person is is going to sense that you're not trying to help them, but rather this is an attempt to protect yourself. Only after I reprove myself, I find that shortcoming, that flaw, that failure, that problem within me, then I could speak to the other person. Because as we know, the words that come from the heart will enter the heart. So let's go back to the story of the sons of Noah. Let's see how this applies to them. Remember, Ham saw his father's nakedness while Shem and Yafis did not. Their respective actions stemmed from different emotional responses. And so that's the difference that the Torah is attempting to capture when it tells us that Ham saw his father's nakedness and Shem and Yafas did not see it. Ham himself struggled with, with promiscuity, with immodest passions, with shameful trends. So you know what? When he observed his father in a shameful and degenerate condition, he actually saw his father's nakedness. He saw his father as drunk and naked. Noah was a mirror of Ham himself. Shem and Yafas, on the other hand, they were not as morally debased as Ham. They were more refined inside. It was not only that they walked backwards to avoid the physical sight of their nude father, 
but really in their mental experience, they didn't see the father's nakedness. When they heard from their brother about what had happened, what transpired with their father, they didn't see in the message a description of how lowly their father felt. Rather, what they saw in the experience was their own responsibility to maintain the ethos of moral modesty to go and cover their father. That's what they saw. Shem and Yafis, they're not getting tangled on their father's problem because they themselves were not part of the problem. They were liberated from it. They focused instead on their duty, on their on the solution to help their father. In this vulnerable and painful moment of his. And so my friends, this is the timeless lesson of the Torah for each and every, every one of us from this episode. When we point the finger at someone else, we have to remember that simultaneously, you know what? We're pointing three fingers back at ourselves. Yeah, try that out. The next time you find yourself about to criticize another person, whether it is a relative, whether it's a friend or a stranger, stop and think, where is this coming from? Is it coming from a place of love for the other person? Or are we really about to criticize that which we hate most about ourselves? If you realize that the criticism is coming from the reflection of what we hate in ourselves, then look at it as an opportunity to address something that I've ignored for far too long in myself. And instead of criticizing the other person, I know my job is to fix myself. And once we have done so, and we completely cleansed ourselves of the blemish, then we'll be ready to help another person to address the very same issue with love. And then, in all likelihood, will be successful because it's coming from a good place. And that's when we realize, of course, words that come from the heart will enter the heart. And with that in mind, I think this profound idea from the Baal Shem Tov, that there are two perceptions. Some people see the bad and evil in another person's behavior and they condemn them. And others will see room for improvement and try to constructively repair others. And I think based on this idea, we learn from the Baal Shem Tov's teaching that another person's evil is a reflection of our own. And it doesn't conflict with the idea to tell someone when we see something wrong. The Baal Shem Tov speaks and tells us that when we see that reflection of something in our side ourselves, we have to work on fixing it in ourselves and then we'll be able to help others and fix what's inside them as well, and then it will be most effective.